Glass Edge Radio. Events broadcast in three. listening to The Edge. Everything bass fishing coming to you worldwide from Megaware Keelguard Studios. Welcome to another episode of Bass Edge Radio. Aaron, here we are rocking out episode number 305, the June 1 edition. Lots going on in the fishing world this time of year, isn't it? Man, there is. And literally things are heating up. I'm sure you're setting, uh, doing your uh, recording in your Speedo swimsuit, getting ready for summer season. Yes, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, consistent. But uh, one thing that is always consistent, and for those that happen to listen to episode 304, they got to hear the introduction of Tour. Reed with Megaware Keelguard. Join us. Go back and catch that. But as always, we are brought to you by our good friends at Megaware Keelguard. Put on the protection the pros pick by choosing Megaware products from the Scuff Buster to the first do-it-yourself keel protector, skate guard, flex step, the list goes on and on. Be sure to visit them at keelguard.com. Speaking of things heating up, Kurt, John Cox on fire. That's all I can say. Yeah, dude. What is up with the dealio? I even posted on his social media. I'm wondering, are you human i mean come on no doubt he's killing it he just won the chickamauga bass open just prior to that won the chickamauga flw tour that sounds like oh well he just you know same fish had it dialed in dude he won the flw tour up the river he won the bass open down lake i mean just all over it the consistent theme primarily shallow if you don't know john cox he runs an aluminum boat i was gonna say he doesn't uh, have more than 10 feet on his line does he line on his reel (laughs) yeah not generally um but uh it seemed like he was targeting some i don't want to say offshore but you know mid-depth fish and some grass but then you know ended up reverting to um catching most of his fish shallow around bluegill beds and i think he caught a couple late spawners as well but it goes back even more prior to that the bass open on smith lake just before the flw tour dude jacked him finished second place almost won that deal and he's either leading the flw tour angler of the year or he's in second place you know terrible that i don't know that but him and david dudley battling it out for the flw angler of the year which will go down at the end of this month at lake champlain so uh dude john cox props to you buddy if you haven't been following mr cox out there you better get on board because he's doing some special things i would say right now no question at all the hottest angler in the country yeah the hammer that's been the story in the fishing world. We had MLS, your homebody, Aaron, Table Rock. Yeah, they were catching them, weren't they? They were catching them. We're going to dive into that and a little bit more about Bass Angler Mag. But first, the protecttheharvest.com tackle tip. This episode's protecttheharvest.com tackle tip with FLW Tour Pro, Brian Schmidt. Okay, guys, I'm going to dive into a really cool bait. It's a bait that gets me a lot of bites, but it seems to get big bites. It's a missile-based D-bomb. You know, I'm going to take this bait, I'm going to Texas rig it. Depending on the cover, I'm going to use a quarter ounce, tungsten weight, shallow, sparser cover, three-eighths maybe, and flipping some wood, flipping around docks half ounce, three quarter, one ounce into the thicker vegetation. There's times I'm even punching this bait through mats and I'm going up to a one ounce, one and a half ounce weight. 
this bait is just an all-around good flipping bait. You know, you can get in your bluegill colors, you can get in your crawled egg colors, whatever you feel the fish are on. But, you know, I'm really going to try to find a vegetation pattern for this bait, for the D-bomb. And it just seems to really, really get us some big bites as well as, you know, just getting you plenty of bites. Brian, that's a great tip. Appreciate it. That tip was brought to you by protecttheharvest.com. First by land and now by sea. For years, Lucas Oil has been a staple in high-performance vehicles on both the road and track. Now, from the makers of Lucas Oil comes Lucas Marine products, specifically engineered for marine applications. Protect and lubricate your marine inboard, outboard, or high-performance boat with Lucas Marine Engine Oil or Lucas Synthetic-Based Oil. Learn more about the complete line of Lucas Oil and marine products. Visit lucasoil.com. Nitro Performance Bass Boats. Get pro-level performance with the Nitro Z18, the official boat of Major League Fishing. The Z18, with its nimble handling and versatility, sports many of the features in the larger boats in the line, like a Guardian Live Well, a heavily insulated cooler, dual 8-foot rod storage, and our smooth and fast NVT hull. Every Nitro boat is laid out to do one thing very well, catch fish. Enormous front decks up to 45 square feet on the Z21 allow maximum mobility when battling unruly bass and feature low-profile gunnels for ease of skipping, pitching, flipping, or landing fish. Nitro Performance Bass Boats, pure fishing machines. Kurt, speaking of Major League Fishing on my favorite lake, Table Rock, you know, we alluded to it, but good night. They caught them, but the footage that you were seeing, was it mainly smallmouth, largemouth? Because uh, I know the smallmouth were biting like crazy. Unfortunately, I was at a tournament when that was going on, so I didn't get to see a lot of the coverage. Yeah, we're going to hit up on your tournament experience here in a second. <laughs> but when talking about the MLF at Table Rock, basically what they did is set records. Um, <laughs> so I think uh, Bobby Lane now has a single-day record. He caught uh, 90 some pounds uh 60 some fish or something insane i think the record was broken three times during the event i know that one time uh josh bertrand had the record after the shotgun round i believe it was but aaron they caught the fire out of him it seemed to be a good mix of largemouth and smallmouth quite honestly and and obviously some spotted bass table rock one of those awesome lakes in the country that you can catch all three species you know a three pounder of each kind on any cast on this exact same spot they definitely caught the living daylights out of them it was tough to get a big bite a four pounder was a monster they caught tons of fish smallmouth have definitely been more prevalent it seems to me in table rock over the last 18 to 24 months would you agree with that like the last couple years yes and they're definitely you know becoming a a major player and certainly just the time of year that they were there i think uh you know pulling up on some of the areas those those long tapering points you can go crack a tube i mean there's so many different ways swim baits to everything else but yeah they it seems like they have just exploded in population no doubt shout out to aaron martins not the Aaron Martin, but Aaron Martins that uh, won the event. And uh, so congratulations to him. It seemed like Steve Banks were a big deal. Bobby Lane did really well. Zach Burge did really well on Bluff Banks. I saw a lot of coverage of those guys. Uh, Aaron Martin's out deep, more of the drop shot deal. That's the way he caught them. But, um, you know, neither here nor there. It seems like all the lakes in that area of the country had a lot of rise. There was fish caught shallow flipping. You, Aaron, were at a tournament at Bull Shoals recently as well and had a good experience out there at Bull Shoals with some high water. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was the same week as Major League Fishing, so lake was about 20 feet high. Made it very interesting. Was coming up anywhere from six to 10 inches a night, constantly on the rise. So very very unique dynamics. Uh, water, you could tell if a dime was heads or tails in about 25, and you could see a quarter in about 35. If that puts it in perspective. So normally wow. when lakes are that high, you have more dirty water. Had a terrible practice. Everybody it seemed like, but me was catching them in practice. And day one, I just decided I'm not going to go fish anything that I did in practice. Went to a complete new area. Literally did not know where I was going until I took off out of the buoys that morning. Threw a top water. Had two fish come up on it, but would not take it. So I moved back out, grabbed a shaky head, and then uh, just kind of went to work on them from there and started putting things together. Caught more keepers in that first day than I did the entire four days of practice. But where I'm going with this is a lesson learned. Day one, I was setting in 11th place. Day two, heading into the final day. Had the limit early. We're not biting as well, but a big bite was was premium as it is in most tournaments post spawn tournament you know four and a half pounder was the biggest fish that was weighed in but the wind picked up was blowing 30 to 40 miles an hour sustained so i grabbed uh, when it when it pops up which it does so in a hurry it goes from dead calm to just you know gale force winds i have a, a big swim bait tied on pulled up on a point made a cast she hooked up unfortunately kurt and i think where you're going with this is uh we always talk about controlling the things that we can control and i did not do that the wind was blowing in uh, no big deal there but i hooked her it was on a uh, seven foot 11 inch rod big swim bait rod 20 pound test had her going but i heard a noise looked down at the uh, my line and it was fraying and, yep yep exactly you know where i'm going with this the ceramic came out of my rod tip and so watching my line frayed i paused and when the boat is going towards uh, the fish that you're catching i gave her just a little bit of slack she shot up once went back down shot up again and on the second time was able to throw that big swim bait but i, I will conservatively say it was at least a six pounder but there again you know it was nice considering the practice that i had i still felt really really good ended up getting a check in the check line finished 12th but man what would have happened if yeah could have caught that fish you know but that's the way it goes that is fishing sometimes unfortunately those things happen you you just hate when it happens on a monster yeah, and, and you know, I got really lax on checking my stuff like that. So I went through all my rods after that, and, and certainly I found a, a few more guides and stuff like that that need some tender, loving care and some updates. But, you know, live and learn. That's why it's fun. That's why we do what we do. And speaking of uh, learning, Kurt, did you know that the uh, Bass Angler Magazine summer issue is shipping to tackle shops, newsstands, and subscribers now? And I saw Watson and Horton and uh, on some topwater baits, cranking offshore, community hall. A lot of good stuff there, as Mark always puts together another great issue of Bass Angler Magazine. Yeah, Bass Angler Mag, great partner here with us at Bass Edge Radio. You know, some of the things to look for in this particular episode, if you're not a subscriber, be sure to grab it on newsstands or, like Aaron said, your local tackle shop, or just become a subscriber, and then you just get it in the mailbox, and it's awesome read material when you got time to sit down and relax. Uh, James Worldwide Watson, previous guest here last month on Bass Edge Radio, talked about topwater baits in the summertime. You got Timmy Horton talking about deep cranking. Timmy's always been that offshore guru kind of guy dredging up school and bass from the depths. And uh, then you've got community hole etiquette brought to you everybody by Robbie Latusos talking about proper etiquette when playing bumper boats on community holes. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bass Angler Magazine always hitting on phenomenal topics. Make sure you check them out 
And Aaron, we are going to check out our Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight coming up next. We got a BASS Elite Series Angler that's been catching some monster sacks. Hang tight, y'all. We're going to talk about how Chad Pipkin's been catching big, big bass, big, big weights. We're going to put the information in your ears so you can spit it back out when you're out there on the lake. Hang tight. Hi, I'm professional angler Stetson Blaylock. This is Bassmaster Elite Series Pro Bill Lowen. This is FLW Ray Evac Champion Brian Schmidt. This is professional angler Joe Sancho. This is Peter Yamaha Pro Dave Mansu. Stay right here with Aaron and Kurt on Bass Edge Radio. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything else other than the original and toughest DIY keel protector for your boat, MegaWare Keel Guard? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our exclusive contoured edge and patented technology. MegaWare Keel Guard Keel Protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the longest-lasting, most dependable keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. Developed specifically by boat builders, offering the best keel protection in the industry. Also for MegaWare Keel Guard, Skeg Guard, Flex Step Pro, and Pontoon Guard. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. MegaWare Keel Guard. This BASS Elite Series angler has been dropping monster sacks on the scales the last few events from Lake Fork in Texas to Lake Chickamauga in Tennessee. We're going to work out the details of these amazing bags and hope to give us all the chance to catch mega bags of bass. Bass Edge Radio welcomes BASS Elite Series Pro Chad Pipkins. We appreciate you being on the show with us today, Chad. Hey, thanks for having us, guys. I'm excited to give you a little insight on what went right and wrong on those couple few days <laughs> <laughs> well we are too chad welcome back and uh as you said lots to chat about no doubt so uh let's first catch up though on the on the last few months you've had a terrible injury uh back early in the spring possibly having to depart the elite series for the remainder of the year then you gut it out and roll out a top 12 at hartwell you know most people have difficulty catching fish the normal way you had to completely adjust and relearn how to catch them a different way what in the world happened yeah i guess i should have my wife break that collarbone up two months earlier maybe we would have started off a little stronger <laughs> but, uh, yeah, things, things have been going well well and it's, it's funny how it works out it's, i'm not saying it changed the way i fish but it made me think about the way i fish too because I, I like to run and gun and, and move around, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's guys that make a living doing that. Um, I look back at a lot of the events where I've done well, and I'm running and gunning, but I'm, I'm also revisiting similar locations, you know, multiple times throughout the day. And I look back at events that I haven't done well, and, and I'm hitting those places, but then I'm, I'm just leaving them, and I'm not, I'm not coming back. You know, I'm kind of running around to too many different places and not touching on places again. And at Hartwell, I was really forced to just really slow down like still fish areas quickly if I wanted to, but I, I wasn't making long boat rides. Cause I mean, I had to drive one handed it hurt. So I just kind of got in a section of the lake and said, you know, here's one of the fish. And then I worked a little deep, but I had to work a little shallow. I just, I wanted to have different things to fish, but not make long runs. And I had to hit some of those sections again, you know, as those fish come and go, which they do in the spring a lot, you know, based on sun or weather or just time when they decide to trigger to bite. 
You talked a little bit about in some articles that I had read that you had to change your style. Obviously, you talked there about changing how much you were running and stuff. How about, you know, just fighting the fish? Basically, you're fishing with one arm. So you've got to land. You know, there's no nets at BS's lead series. So you're trying to land fish, fight fish, set the hook and do all this this stuff with one arm. How did that work out? And, and what, what kind of altercations did you get into? And then did you teach you anything as far as maybe some better ways? to land fish because yeah. that, that certainly was a huge challenge for sure and like going into that i mean my, my doctor said you cannot lift anything more than five pounds with your left hand and you don't want anything in front of the body but if i keep my elbow my left elbow to my side you know i'd, I'd be all right and don't put pressure on don't get excited and push off and i get excited when i catch big fish but like i've also learned like if you watch me fight fish i'm jacked up mentally but i'm not rushing those fish my first year on the elite series was a fish landing disaster because I was getting the fish to the boat quick, and then they're all fired up. It's like, what do you do then? You know, and I see guys do it all the time, guys that we fish with, and to each their own, I guess. But I see guys bringing these giants or small fish or whatever, and then they're thrashing at the boat with three feet of line out, and you don't have a net. That's when the most things can go wrong. So for me, it was getting pressure on the fish early. Like, let those fish tire out. When you've got 10 to 20 feet of line out, there's more stretch on the line, but you've got the rod to give. And then when those fish come in, like at Fork or at Hartwell or whatever, when my fish came in, they just floated to the surface and it made it a lot easier to land. And for me, in that first event, I actually had to, like I could hold the rod with my right hand and I was able to dangle my left arm over the boat, but I wasn't able to lift my left arm up. So like uh-huh. I just kind of controlled the fish and then I could get my hand on her lips and then I would actually have to set my rod down and pass the fish from my left hand and my right hand. And nice. it sounds trickier than it was, but when they were that tired, it really wasn't a big deal. I lost one fish the first day, like 100% because of it, because she was there ready. I just couldn't move my arm to grab her. But right. I was going back and catching that fish an hour later anyway. So it all, it all ended up working out. So so you just targeted 4.98 pounders. Exactly. <laughs> I got to do the doctor says. Very simple, right? Oh, that's great. That's an awesome story. So let's keep it rolling now. You go into Texas Fest. And then this is what I really want to dive into in this interview, man. There's so many great things that you've had going on lately. You crack two 30-plus pound bags, 31.15, your largest in that event. Can you tell us quickly about your practice? And then the first two days, I mean, you've got to be on top of the world. Two 30-plus pound bags. You're doing awesome in the event. How did that kind of materialize? Yeah, and for the record... I was still on top of the world on day three, even after right, catching five right, and a half. Right. It's one of those things where, like, yeah, I didn't expect to catch 30. I was on fish in practice, but it just kind of worked out, you know, the first couple of days. And for me, again, it was all about picking a section of the lake. I did not run all over the place. I had never seen that body of water until Monday. I was supposed to have a scouting trip for there and uh, the place in Oklahoma, but when I broke my collarbone, I just had to stay home. I'm like, we'll go figure it out when we get there. <laughs> right, right. And not, not the that easiest ex- place to navigate either, right? <laughs> no, and, and, that, and that was honestly the hardest part because there was a lot of other places I wanted to look at like after I got dialed into what I was doing on day one and two but it just took so much time and that, honestly that was the biggest problem because in practice I actually I was catching them shallow when I started that tournament like I had a just an epic shad spawn around some islands I could catch four to five pounders and some bigger ones like and they were all over the place 
And then I had some giants on beds. My last day, I was actually planning on just sight fishing because I was planning on going deep on the last day on Wednesday. But then I get up shallow and I find one that's probably six to seven. I shook it off in like five minutes. And then I find one that at the time I thought was seven or eight. It was probably 10 after seeing some fish now. Like I caught one when I went out with my wife the day after, like I thought was a three and a half and it was a five. It was kind of like top, like looking at that giant, like that might be a six or seven and you hook into it. And it's an 11 pounder. Like I had one, it was two feet deep and this thing would go upside down on it and her tail would come out of the water. And I took that fish off on Wednesday and those are where I started, you know, going into that event. And like that lightning and thunder just messed up a lot of that stuff for me. They kept coming, but the crazy part was, is I had a couple places where I had deep bites, like in transitional places. And like the one I marked a lot of those fish and I had a great picture on a hummingbird unit, like of the size. I just happened to go across at the right angle and I could see like white bass, but big bass all over the place. And that was a place I made a couple casts and took one off and caught like a three and a half pounder. And the other one was a place where, you know, I had a couple pull off on a crankbait and then uh, catch like a four pounder. So it's one of those deals where like, I knew those places were good. I just didn't know how good. And it just, that first day, I mean, everything was falling apart shallow for me. Like I'm a big believer in staying positive and staying with it. And you will never see me on the water negative. And because you don't know when or, or how it's going to happen, I just tell myself it's going to happen. Whether it happens today, tomorrow, like if I stay with it, I can make it happen. And that was the first day. I mean, I struggled the morning. I fished those bed fish. They were all gone. I think I caught one like three and a half pounder, went down my shad spawn stuff. And I think the lightning and thunder just, it ruined that for that day, at least where I was at. And those fish actually kind of left. And I'm like, well, let's start running these couple deep places. And uh, even the first place I went to, it didn't, I caught one four and a half pounder the first time I was there, you know, but then I went to the next place and it just, it started to happen. And I could see the fish being, you know, post-spawn. Like those two places were definitely where they were coming. Unfortunately, I don't want to say there wasn't any more because guys were catching them spawning too. But a lot of those fish that I was targeting there, I think we're also moving out, you know, like those transition places. When you talk about the transition, what kind of depth zone are you looking at? And do you feel like they were just sitting there waiting for the shad? And that's why the white bass were in the vicinity too? If you could just kind of break that down a little bit. Yeah, yep. The two main locations, uh, the one where people saw me just crack my bass live on the second day, that was where I caught all my weight the second day. And that place was like a, a neat little, I mean, there's, if you pick six awesome points in that creek I was fishing in, that would be like point number 10. You know, it wasn't anything special. It was like a little rounded, I call them like a nub. It wasn't even really a point. It was just a little rounded, uh, a rounded nub on the bank in between two larger points. And I just think it's a place that had the right bottom content and there was bait and that's where they were sitting. They weren't on the two larger points in front and back of that. They were just sitting there because the bottom was right. You know, probably a little shell bed. There was a hard bottom and the bait was there. You know, every day when I caught them, I would catch white bass too. The day I didn't catch them, on that place on day three, any of the three times I was there, I never even had a bite or a white bass bite. And I think I should have caught them regardless. I heard there was a handful of boats out there that sat on that all day. And it kind of makes sense just because where I was catching them, the first day was on the right edge. And then the left day when I found out the cast, it was on the left edge. And there was nothing up shallow that day. And I'm thinking it's because a couple boats maybe have sat on it and maybe scared them off a little bit. Because gotcha. then, like I noticed it on day three, when I idled off a couple of times, I saw the fish sitting off the break. And unfortunately, when I came back to fish those, like two and three times, I'd make a cast with a deeper crankbait. And both times I hung a dang tree, like off the edge. And I'm wondering, like, if I wouldn't have hung that tree, would I got bit? Because I did catch them there on the fourth day, but I caught them off the break further. You know, so it's just kind of like figuring that cast out. I think I was a little unlucky on that place because it happened 
at the same tree that's right off the break where they were sitting each time. And then I wasn't able to trigger those fish. And, you know, that was the deal that day. The other area was actually just a little deeper. They could still sit in like 10 or 11, but they sat off the break in like 16 quite a bit too. And that was just um, like a big finger. That would be a more obvious place. Like if you were going to look in a big creek, you've got a finger kind of intersecting the main creek. All the fish that are spawning in the back, that should be a stopping place for them. And that's what it was. (laughs) So Chad, obviously you are a positive person. We've talked about this a lot with how that mental aspect plays in. You know, you come off of those two 30 pound plus bags like Kurt had mentioned and day three you're still on top of the world but the last couple of days of, of that event you kind of scramble was there something that you took away from losing touch of those magical days to more or less start the event yeah I mean those days don't like when somebody catches them like that like you're usually not catching them all day like people on Bass Life saw me there are windows you know people saw me just smash them it's not like I smashed them like that all day and a lot of those guys that caught 30 plus phone bags you're, you're catching three or four giants in five to ten minutes and then you're not doing anything for an hour hour and a half that's worth anything and going into that you know having a good day day one early and same thing day two I knew I had a chance to win I had to find more fish and find out where they're going so each of those days I spent half of my day graphing and looking for new water and there was one place that I found them that you know, I ended up catching two or three of my fish on day four. They just weren't there yet those other days. You saw me lose like a two-pounder there on day three that I tried to flip or whatever. And, you know, there was one other location that I found that they were there. I just couldn't get on it because it was actually a place that Gussie was sharing with uh, Brandon Card. And it was just one of those things, getting back. You guys talked about the timber. That was the hard thing for me. I felt like if there wasn't that much timber, I probably could have found something more, you know, because I'm very careful when I drive. And I don't want to wreck my stuff because it doesn't do you any good if you can't get back in. It's hard to look for new water when you're having to spend quite a bit of time idling into places, you know, versus like I knew what to look for. I just couldn't get to enough of it quick enough to find the fish. You know, I feel like that's why I wasn't able to get it done. You know, the fish that I found, I only had a couple places. I mean, it is absolutely crazy. I'm going to tell you, I practiced deep and, and at Fork for about two to three hours. <laughs> and I was shallow <laughs> the rest of the week because there was a shad spawn going on. I'm like, I got to keep it simple. If I'm going to compete here, I just need to survive. And I thought my best chance of surviving was shallow. And then I happened to come across a couple places, so I spent a few hours looking for it. You know, but if I were to put in two to three days, maybe I'd have found a few more places. You know? Sure. That makes perfect sense. You know, often people don't quite get what it really takes to win these events. I mean, you've had that experience before, obviously, Chad. And a lot of things got to come together, not just in the tournament, but in practice. And it's all got to lead to the funneling W. And you can get to that light where you see the light but sometimes it gets shut off and and there's not a whole lot you can do except you know say hey look we had a good go with this thing it just didn't work out this time but you know it's it's always maybe the next one will be the next w so yeah and, I, and i'm getting closer like i've seen that a few times i led one day last year at um, yes. uh, lacrosse too so i'm like i'm getting closer i just got to put it together for four days which is easier said than done sometimes but like i said you just got to stay with it and the big thing is just being open because four day events things change and that's why like that day three i mean i hate even saying like I felt like I made great decisions. I was just unlucky with where I ended up. I really feel, I, and I really believe that because like I went shallow two or three times and you know, I lost a three and a four pounder up on a wacky worm, which never happens. I find a three pounder and I'm just about to catch it. Then a dang seven pounder swims in and pulls the fish off. And I don't have time to catch it. You know, I mean, I I go out with my wife on Tuesday after the tournament, we go in the pocket next to where I fished. There's a four pounder on a bed. I catch it going another one. I catch a five pounder. And it was just, that's all I was looking for to just give myself a chance on Sunday, catch a couple four to five pounders coming with close to 20. 
you know, 15 to 20, and I would have had a chance, you know, and that that's right. just that's right. didn't happen. <laughs> yep, yep. And, and some of those things are uncontrollables. You know, they just happen when they're supposed to happen, you know, so it makes perfect sense. Now, let's shift focus a little bit before we go to break. I want to talk about the Bass Open on Chickamauga just a short week and a half or so ago. You had 29-11. Dude, I mean, you've been catching some crazy sacks, right? I mean, people think, yeah, and, and catching 20-pound bag in a tournament is, I mean, let's face it, it's like I had 20, right? I mean, that's that's a that's a milestone for a lot of folks. <laughs> and uh, you roll into Chick, day two, you catch 29-11, giving you another, you know, kind of help lead your way to another top 10 finish. How does this mega bag come together? And it's anything like I said before that comes together in short periods of time you know and it was one of those deals where like I had a really good practice there my plan there was to only fish deep I wanted to use that place as like a learning tool for Gunnersville because I do not have a lot of ledge fishing experience I'm trying to get better at it and right. I'm starting to put the pieces to the puzzle together and I'm really relating a lot to smallmouth fishing it's, it's very very similar with time windows and how they lay out in contours and when I figure something out like that I I like electronics. I like being off the bank. I hope I can, you know, become pretty good at it. Um, sure. And that place was it was phenomenal for me. But in practice, they ran water every day. And like that, that first day, I I was basing my locations and where I needed to be based on the current schedule that they had in the past. I didn't know that things change drastically on Thursday and Friday because they don't run water for storage for the weekend. That's what I come to find out. Because on Monday through Wednesday, they turn the water on every day at nine and, or 11 up to 45,000. And that's when, that was like the light bulb. And when that happened, I mean, I had probably 20 some schools marked, not all with giants, but there was maybe six, six plus places where I thought I had a chance to catch five to 10 pounders. Nice. And I wasn't catching a bunch of two and a half to four pounders. It was either less than two or it was five to 10. <laughs> and you can see that. You literally can see that from my weight. Right, and right. Um, on day two, when it come together, it's I learned that from day one. I mean, I, on day one, I hit a lot of my best stuff in the morning, and I came back to it, you know, at 10 or 11 because I thought it was going to be right, and it just the water wasn't running. I remember it not running, you know, and, and then I, I, I was trying to – I should have just went to some of my secondary schools, like the smaller ones, and caught another keeper or two, but I was really trying to give myself a chance to win, and I, I stayed out on some of that deeper front-edge stuff like Island Heads, just leading into that. And I had, I had a 215 check-in and things started to get right around 1231. And guess what I was doing at that point? I was kind of scrambling, you know, going, working my way back. So on day two, I started instead of the lower end, I started on the upper end and worked my way down. And there was a little bit of water running for whatever reason on an island in the morning. I caught a five pounder, like right off the bat on a big crank bit. I'm like, well, here we go. You know, then I just used the next four or five hours and just bounced around, caught 10 keepers probably, you know, but nothing huge, maybe one a little less than three pounds. And when it got right, it was, it was just that little window. Like I was at a place and I could see the current coming. Like I saw it start to run and, and it was moving stuff. I'm like, we got to go now. Like I we literally <laughs> just caught one. I told my co we got to go now. And it was, it was the right call. Cause as soon as we got to where I was going, it was a place where I caught like a seven pound on a drop shot, just a little break with some shells. But all these places where the big ones are, they're touching deep water or like really close access to deep water. And I think that's the key with a lot of those bigger baths that are on ledges and places they want to be able to pull off and suspend. I'm guessing they're safe out there. You know, nobody's messing with them. Suspend it out in the channel. 
And uh, when I tell you, it could have been more than the 29. It's just, this is the craziest fish catch I've ever had. I didn't get a bite for a few minutes. And then I picked up a big plug again and like off the edge where they were kind of suspended. Okay. And I started, I, I made one cast and my co-angler sits down. And he's like, welcome sitting down again. Just tell me to move and you hook your big one. And as soon as he finished the <laughs> move, like my rod just loads up and I just, I'm like, move. And he starts laughing. I'm like, no, dude, seriously, this is giant. You need to move. And he slid back and it was, I caught a giant catfish that day too. That was snagged in the head that didn't fight like a bass, didn't fight like a catfish. And that's kind of what this one felt like. I just, I couldn't get it to move and I'm bringing it in. It's kind of like, you know, please be a bass. And I start to get close and I literally start to lift the fish, you know, with the rod tip and the water's pretty clear there. And I look down and like, I didn't even know what I saw at first. I'm like double blanking. I'm like, oh my God, dude, there's two. I look down and there's literally, I've got two fish. At the time, I thought one was six to seven and I thought the other one was eight to nine. And they're literally just beating each other apart. It's like a, a chicken fight or something. They're tied to a four-inch crankbait, you know, with no, nothing to give. They're just going to either bend hooks or they're going to rip their lips apart, you know. Right. And I just, I'm, I'm, I hit them and they start to go down again. So I hit the thumb button and I let them just sink and they're both still on there. And I pull them back up again 15 seconds later and I still got them both. And I'm like, dude, how am I going to grab both of these fish? And I was thinking that, and then I, I, I watched, like 100% sure watched the big one get away. And it was, you know, two, at least two to three pounds bigger than the other one. Right. And then I think I was very fortunate to get to land the one I did. And I kid you not, I landed the one. That was my 9-8. Like, I, I'm telling you that the one that got away was 11 to 12. It was the biggest fish I'd ever seen, and it made a nine-and-a-half pounder look like a six-pounder. I had 38 to 40 pounds on. Wow. <laughs> which is crazy. I mean, you're never going to land both of those because they're just – they're going to, like I said, bend the hooks out, but it was pretty insane to actually <laughs> to see that. Have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that is crazy. So, man, I, I tried to tie on a crankbait again. Dude, I couldn't, my hands wouldn't even work. They were shaking. Everything in the boat was moving. Like, <laughs> I was just so jacked up. And it's just an awesome feeling. I hope everybody that fishes needs to experience that at some point because it's amazing. And cause I, I really thought I was going to stand up and catch 35 to 40 pounds. And it, right. it just didn't happen. Apparently, I caught the, the two that were in line, and I wish they would just sort of wait turns. Would have worked out better for me. Lesson of the 2911 is watch for the moving water because you've got to be in the right spot when it's when it's turned on. There's there's no question about that. Yeah, and, and the big thing still was like a lot of that stuff, there's community holes there that are pretty obvious, but there's bite windows and it's getting to those places at the right time. And that's why I wanted to be there. It's a place that I, I know a couple other guys are fishing too. And, and if somebody watched me catch that fish, you know, they were there. I just happened to have the timing down right that time and I was a little ahead of them. Otherwise, they might have caught it. Sure. And then, then the thing is, you know, it's only one o'clock and I got two and a half, three hours. Do I sit here all day? <laughs> And I just, that's not, I hate saying that's not my style after seeing that happen, but it's not, you know, and so I waited it out about as long as I could, 20 or 30 minutes. And then I actually picked up a, a bigger crankbait, like a 10 XD and got off the brake some more. And I did catch another one over six there, you know, just got a different angle and a, a different fish to trigger. That's what got me to like 25 pounds. And then um, I had a couple other places where I had caught some really big ones too. And I, again, I gave it some time, but I'm like, let's run some other stuff and let's come back, you know, hit this at the end of the day. And I, I called once or twice when I left to get up a little higher. And I did catch one more big one, like on a break, like really close to that when I come back. And that's what got me to the, you know, right at the 30 pounds or whatever. <laughs> Great stuff, Chad. We're going to take a short moment to drop a message to our listeners. We're going to revisit Chickamauga the other days. But first, we're going to power pole down and resume in a moment. Hang tight. Bass Edge Radio will return. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real world punishment. The power pole is the ultimate shallow water boat positioning tool. Swift. 
Power Pole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, Power Pole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong current or gusting winds in up to eight feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. Power Pole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. Bass Edge Radio presented in part by Mercury Marine returns with BASS Elite Series Angler Chad Pipkins in the Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight. That's right, Lucas Oil high-performance marine products for oil that surpasses all manufacturer's requirements. Be sure to visit the BassEdge.com store for free shipping. It works. Chad, before the break, we listened about the, the 29 and change sack you had there at Chick. Led you to your top 10 finish. I want to concentrate on the positive, but I really want to educate the listeners on on the importance of the process of getting to catch that mega bag and not being disappointed when you don't catch the mega bag. And the other two competition days at the Chick, one day you weighed four for 11 and change. The day after you weighed the 29-11, you had five for eight and change. What's your take on what's happened to these fish the days that we struggle to connect with them? For sure. And that day too, like I had that later check-in, you know, so I was able to catch one or two of those big ones when they started moving that water at three but i still had 25 pounds by 130 and the difference was i got on one of those places when the water just turned on at one and that's what i caught two really big ones between one and 130 and that was key and like i said uh, on day one i really thought that water was going to run at nine or 11 so i wasn't putting myself in the right places looking back on day one i should have caught them on day one there was a couple places where they were biting every time i went i would catch one that kind of gets back to that idea by, you know, you need to revisit places. I was just really wanting to catch them on a big crankbait, how I caught them in practice. But that wasn't the deal on day one. Like, you had to slow down because they just weren't firing. So day one was on me. Like, I really felt I should have caught them, but I was learning the current. And on right. day two, like, I knew when the current was going to fire. And I knew where to be and when I should be there. And Absolutely. it all came together. And the crazy thing is I knew that on day three, too. The problem is I just didn't have the window. Like, they literally did not pull at all. The only chance I had of them pulling was at one. Now, guys that have a little more experience down there were catching them from other ways, maybe some schools that would fire, you know, that weren't. But the, the places I was fishing were current-driven 100%, like closest to the channel in the current, and those fish trigger when that light of current comes on. And I thought the only chance I would have at my window was between, I literally said between 1 and 130. That's the only time it turns on at all. I mean, they, instead of being at like 45, they were like 13 all day. I think it got to mid twenties at right. one. TVA is a trickle, right? <laughs> oh man, it was bad. And the crazy thing is though, like it, it still almost happened or could have happened, even with that little bit of water. I mean, I didn't, I lost one in the morning, but just kind of bounced around catching small keepers. And I wanted to give myself a chance to win. If anything was going to happen, I wasn't trying to catch two and a half pounders. I was eight pounds behind John Cox. I knew I had to catch probably 25 to have a shot to win. And so I wanted to stay in those places, even though I wasn't getting bites, I stayed out in those places. Cause I'm like, if I can just get one dumb one or one that's early to fire, you know, it could happen. And we got on that place that, where I caught a couple big ones the day before. And I was there at, you know, 1230. Cause I wanted to be there before it turned on. And before the other guy would want to be there too, you know, and go figure. We both showed up at just the same time. I was a little early and um, I had one chance it just didn't happen. I mean, I told my co-angler, I'm like, if we get a bite, it's going to be between 115 and 130, and then we'll leave if we don't. And it was 110, and I hooked a absolute giant. You know, it felt like the other one. I never saw it, but set into it, and it didn't. I thought it was snagged. Like, didn't even move. Then it gives me a couple head shakes, and then, it, you know, it comes, starts to come up. It goes down a bit. 
little head shake or two and just pulled off and I would bet my lunch it was a eight to ten pounder too and that's what I was fishing for you catch one or two of those bites a day you come in with 25 like I said I wasn't catching two and a half to three pounders it was giants or or babies <laughs> well that's so. that's a what a neat story and you know I want to dive deeper pardon the pun into this uh ledge fishing process and you touched on a little earlier in your personal experience but what will make an angler kind of second guess his or her choice to stay out there and wait for move to make another pattern work you know you you had mentioned that that's just not your style and you gave it like 30 minutes but can you elaborate a little bit on that chad yeah and everybody's got to fish their strengths and styles and like if, if you're at a place and you find two mega schools and you know you, you don't have enough stuff to run and gun well you're not going to do good running and gunning you're probably better off trying to pick one off here or there and for me like it just didn't happen there like i they didn't want to bite a lot of other stuff a lot of places you can roll up and still catch them on a nico rig or a drop shot and stuff and i think some guys did like i just couldn't get that dialed in here so i would say it depends on your style if you're a guy that li- likes to drag a football jig and a carolina rig or a drop shot not on specific stuff like i love to throw a drop shot but if you ever watch me throw a drop shot like i'm not dragging it around i'm putting it where they are it's almost like power fishing power drop Um, shot it is it's power finesse fishing like i know where they're at when they should be there and then i'm gonna leave and there's other guys that make a lot of money dragging the drop shot or carolina rig down breaks or flats or something and that's kind of what happens those fish suspend and roam if you're willing to put in the hours to just you know get a bite here or there you know you might catch them like that again that's that's not me so it just kind of depends on you got to know how you like to fish and i would rather be in control and hit 10 or 15 places and try to find one that wants to bite versus sitting there waiting for them to bite. At the end of the day, when I sit there and they don't bite, I'm like, I let the fish be in control. And if they decide to bite or not bite, that's what I base my tournament on. And I, I just don't, I don't like to do that. You know, that makes perfect sense. If we look at this big picture, right? Fork, we've got post-spawn fish. I mean, you were catching some spawners and doing other stuff, but one of the mega bags you caught there and primarily both of the mega bags you caught there were a little bit offshore, right? So you mentioned those fish being post-spawn off a little nub and catching them out away from the bank and you could see them on your graph. Chickamauga, same scenario, except they're current related. So talking about the difference between a current oriented bite, like a TVA impoundment, here we have our example, Chickamauga and Lake Fork, you know, a non-current oriented fishery, just more of a standard reservoir. What can an angler do on a non-current dependent bite to be more effective in staying or triggering bass to bite in a situation like this, like like you did at Fork? It's funny. They're totally different because of the current, but they're still so similar because there's still those windows. If you looked at, you know, some of the times when I caught fish, like I didn't catch them in the morning a lot of times, you know, it was that offshore bite. And a lot of times the sun gets right and then they position better, whether there's current or no current. So you look at guys like Garrett Paquette, you know, he's a guy who travels from Michigan. I mean, he wouldn't catch anything until like two o'clock. You know, there was just some school that he could get on that would fire once the sun got up and it was right. And the big thing for me that I noticed is like, it seems like when those fish wanted to bite, I would catch one literally my first cast every time I pulled up to the school. And like, that's when I'm going to spend a little more time catching them. They're they're giving you those signs, you know? And so it's about like moving and hitting places three or four times. Like, I don't want to go there and spend a half an hour because I'm wasting a half an hour. I mean, nine times out of 10, if I got that bite, it was on my first or second cast. That makes things a lot easier, you know, to bounce around because I'm not wasting a ton of time anywhere, you know? And the big thing to think about when you're out in those places that, you know, cause those fish to trigger. And I think that's what happened that second day too. There was a wind switched and the wind was kind of blowing off the bank and all of a sudden 
around nine o'clock or whenever I got over there, eight thirty or something, it started to it turned the other way and it was kind of blowing in a little bit. I mean, a lot of times those fish are there or they're close and it's just something small that triggers them to bite. Maybe a little change of wind, the sun popping out or the or the rain coming instead of the sun popping out. And like looking for those little, uh, you know, subtleties that, you know, may trigger a school of fish, you know, to get them to fire. I think that's, that's key. So it's not current, but you know, paying attention to the weather, the wind and that kind of stuff and getting yourself at the right place at the right time. Right. So when I'm a kid, I was a kid, uh, growing up in Virginia, um, around Washington DC area, you know, I'm a river fisherman. And one of the age old questions of when to stay or when to go. And that's part of what we're talking about here. And I remember a seminar that Wu Daves gave and, and someone asked him that question. And he said, uh, well, you know, I like to eat a fireball. And when my fireball is done and if I haven't gotten a bite, I'm going to move along to the next area. <laughs> you know, and that, that was, <laughs> that's what he was saying. That was his uh, his triggering sign of, you know, OK, my fireballs disintegrated <laughs> in my mouth and I still haven't had a bite. So I'm going to move along. You talked about that briefly, you, you know, catching them quick or you're not going to stay there for a half hour and not get bit and waste your time. So there's no exact form formula, right? You're not watching a stopwatch, I'm assuming, but do you have a feel for what, what is it for Chad Pipkins? Is it, you know, it's, it's 15, funny you say 30 that casts or how does that work out for you? Yeah. Growing up, smallmouth fishing on Erie, like we used to catch them every practice. And then we go on a tournament and you, you'd weigh 15, 16 pounds. And we're like, what happened? And I'm like, well, I got a big bite here, one or two. And then I sat there for an hour and a half and milled around. And then I got a bite versus if I would have left and hit other stuff and came back. I probably would have got those same bites. So we, we developed our little 15 minute rule. We said, if we don't get bites in 15 minutes, we're gone. And I really, it's kind of like that out there. I mean, it, it, it depends on how big the area is. You don't want to run around. You want right. to make sure you hit your sweet spots. But if I'm on an area that I know has two or three sweet spots or sweet casts, I'm probably going to hit those a couple times, you know, a few times a piece with a crankbait. And then maybe I pick up a drop shot or a worm on a couple of those. And if I know I'm hitting my target and I'm not getting those bites, then I'm gone and I'm going to come back. And that the big thing is getting good with your electronics. You got to know you're hitting the right spot. Because a lot of times those fish are setting up on something so specific here, you know, five to 10 feet off, they're not going to bite, but you better be certain that you're hitting it. And that's what helps, you know, having like a 360 or something where you know what you're hitting and then, you know, you can be on to the next deal and then come back, you know? Very good. So it sounds like maybe there is kind of like a little 15 minute rule. <laughs> so, I, I, and that's about how long it takes to eat a fireball probably. I haven't had one for, for a lot of years, but you're probably right. Chad, man, it's been a great interview. We're going to dive into our listener question segment brought to you by nitro performance bass boats ben coots from minnesota i had to ask this question for you because you're a smallmouth guru ben asks i'm new to bass fishing and fish in southern minnesota on the mississippi river i love fishing for smallmouth and found out they're much more aggressive than largemouth if they're three pounds or five inches i fish a few local tournaments last summer and caught plenty of them but with very little size i feel like half the bites weren't even worth sending the hook on in a tournament setting i usually use a wacky worm or a half or three-quarter ounce football head jig. What is the best bait I can throw for bigger smallmouth that won't get bit by the little guys? Man, you're definitely probably not going to ever throw baits that won't get bit by the little guys because I've seen like four to six-inch smallmouth eat eight-inch jerk baits. So it's just they're aggressive and they want to get big, so they eat, which is awesome because we get a lot more bites. The big thing for me, it's time of year. If you're around post-spawn to you know early spawn part of that, like I catch some of my biggest fish up north 
on either uh, topwaters or jerk baits. I just feel like a lot of those bigger fish suspend, and you know some of those smaller fish aren't going to come up and put in the effort to hit a big bait on top of the water. So I, like that, when we go to Champlain and Oneida, like places like that, I catch a lot more big fish on top, but I don't get the bites. And that's kind of what you're saying. So a place like that, I would definitely key in on top water. But a lot of times, it's just the schools of fish. I mean, occasionally a big smallmouth you know, four to five pounders mixed in with two pounders. But a lot of times, like, they group up in size. So if you're catching all, you know, dinks to one and a half, two pounders, it's probably a school thing. And, and, you know, maybe that's a place where you get a limit and then you get out of there and you've got your big fish places where maybe you only get one or two bites, but they're, you know, those three to four pounders. Ah, very interesting. So maybe less to do, Chad, with the particular bait because of the aggressiveness of the smaller fish as well and more to do with kind of just the school that you're looking for. Definitely. I'd say you need to focus on finding a school with bigger fish in it for sure. Well, Chad, thanks for answering that question. And Ben, we certainly appreciate uh, your support of Bass Edge and sending in that question and congratulations for having it answered and chosen to be on the show. One thing we do need from you, though, and that is to uh, get your contact information so we can send out the Bass Edge gift. Simply do that by logging on to Bass edge.com clicking on the claim your prize tab type in the information or send us a email at support at bassedge.com or certainly through any of our social media outlets letting us know that you heard your question answered on this show and a reminder to bass edge listeners keep firing in those questions via our website you'll see a tab to ask the pros to have a shot at winning another gift from bass edge radio you can also email us support at bassedge.com or as aaron just mentioned leave comments on our social media platforms Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter page. Chad, well, thanks again for returning with us here on the show. It's always uh, great to pick your brain as you help us become better anglers. Any uh, closing comments as we get ready to shut down? No, no problem at all, guys. just want to say thanks for having me on the show here, and hopefully uh, I can get back on here when I string four of these days together and maybe have a W. <laughs> uh, no question, Chad. We, we love having you on the show, and when you st- string them together, you will definitely be back on. We appreciate you giving us insight on the success and struggles that we all have out there bass fishing and uh, certainly you are having a lot more good days than bad days and that's what we want to learn from Chad Pipkin so we appreciate all the great information I'm going to leave you with our final little segment four last questions for you what is your favorite boat snack oh man dude well I eat a ton but if anybody ever fished with me I eat and drink more than probably anybody because I just need a lot of fuel I guess Um, (laughs) I love sandwich Sandwiches, man. It's super simple. Smoked turkey, a little mayonnaise, mustard, and cheese. I eat the edges first, and then it's like just a perfect middle for the end, like for the finale. And if, if you need like it toasted when you're at uh, Tennessee, all you got to do is put that on your graph, heats up the cheese a little bit, melts the top, like a toasted sandwich. That's all beautiful. Yeah, especially the last couple of weeks when it's been 90 plus down there, right? Yeah, you could burn it pretty quick that last week. <laughs> so you got to be careful. Set the timer. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Who is the angler you looked up to as you were growing up? Oh, for me, it was that. Like, I love Kevin Van Dam because he's from Michigan and he's just like the king. But it was it was really Iconelli uh, just because he's, I think he did a ton for the sport, like outside of our industry. You know, fishing's growing. You know, kids are fishing. It's cool to fish now. A lot, a lot of that good stuff's going on but fishing is still so small in terms of other sports you know and and the only way we're going to get big is you got guys like mike that are reaching other you know non-demographics and are uh, endemics and he's done a great job of that is like growing the sport for kids and also growing the sport sponsor wise to say like hey there's a lot of people involved with this and come on you know we don't need just fishing companies in our industry we need everybody because there's there's a big market for it i think that's what he's made fishing exciting for me in that because it's 
you know, we can go out and, and make a living now. And a lot of it's because of him, I think. That's a great perspective. If you could pick one color for plastic lures, which one would you choose? No, I I'd, I'd pretty much do. It's uh, just green pumpkin, you know. <laughs> pretty simple, that's the, right? <laughs> that's the one. All right, coming up, the tournament you're looking most forward to the remainder of the year. Oh, man, I'm going to give you two just because I'm going to say, you know, uh, Thousand Islands. Because last year I needed to finish 73rd there to make the classic. And it's like one of my favorite places. And I just had a disaster and was in like last place day one. So like I am ready for revenge. And that would be a great place to win after I get my butt kicked there last time. Um, awesome. so that one for sure. But also just the way things are going, like Gunnersville. I mean, I've never ledge fished there, but I, I'm just excited. Like, I hadn't put in a lot of time on Chick before, and it was cool putting in 15-hour days, like literally dark till dark, just graphing and just figuring it out. And I'm, I'm excited to learn Gunnersville like that. You know, I don't have the experience, and that's part of the excitement of what we do is learning new bodies of water. I love to learn, and it's just going to be cool to go there and hopefully uh, you know put something together and maybe catch a couple more big ones. That's awesome, man. Thanks, Chad, for being here. Good luck in the remaining events this season. We will definitely be watching Bass Edge Nation. Stay tuned. We will return in a moment. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything else other than the original and toughest DIY keel protector for your boat, MegaWare Keel Guard. Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our exclusive contoured edge and patented technology. MegaWare KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the longest-lasting, most dependable keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. Developed specifically by boat builders, offering the best keel protection in the industry. Also from MegaWare KeelGuard, SkegGuard, FlexStep Pro, and Pontoon Guard. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. MegaWare KeelGuard. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the PowerPole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, PowerPole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, PowerPole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong current or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. PowerPole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. Kurt, there's nothing better than talking about fishing, but nothing better than talking about big sacks of big fish. Yeah, yeah, mega bags. So uh, that was fun. Great interview with Chad. A couple of the key scenarios I felt, you know, taken away from the interview was how important timing is. Obviously, current generation on TVA lakes. I also think it's important that understanding the definitive process of catching those fish. Chad talked a little bit about, you know, the success and how that process came about and the craziness of having two ginormous fish on a crankbait at once and that kind of thing. But then the struggles, you know, and how to overcome those. And as anglers, we've got to take this interview and understand what was successful for Chad and then how he he talked about his struggles as well and kind of balanced that out a little bit. Yeah, you know, catching the mega sack is crucial. That's what led him to the top 12 in this last event on Lake Chickamauga. That's what led him to a top 10. You know, those first two days at Lake Fork was catching those mega bags. But then it's managing when the conditions aren't right. 
you know, how do you manage the consistency? You know, maybe we can't catch a 25 or 30 pound bag because conditions just aren't perfect for what we're trying to do. But how do we manage still to put a good sack together? Right. You know, it might not be the mega bag, but a good sack. And he talked a little bit about that and what his mentality was and his approach was. And we can learn from that and take it and kind of put it into our own perspective the next time we're out on the water. And really, that's what Bassage Radio is all about. You know, learning from these awesome anglers and their awesome success and then picking apart when they have some struggles. And it's great that Chad was able to share both of those with us and how that whole thing transpired. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, his mental peace which we talk a lot about here, but always staying upbeat, always staying positive, even that third day when he only had eight pounds, but just looking for those opportunities. And of course, that's all talked about and all reference. I, I see his entire process kind of really taken right out of Dr. Jay McNamara's book, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing. Uh, yeah. And speaking of which, uh, I know you got the same text I did, but I thought it was ironic. Remember in episode 304, how we talked about throwback lures in old school, but uh, how Jason in that picture of that giant that he caught up in Minnesota soda on yeah. your lure the bango lure the bango but, uh, lure yes so yeah, uh, pretty cool but we are out of time and uh, just want to thank all of our listeners for hanging out with kurt and i here on bass edge radio be sure to stay on top of all things bass edge visit the website a lot of great articles a lot of videos and certainly the psychology of exceptional fishing bass edge dvds lucas oil product which has free shipping all of that stuff can be found right there and certainly through all of the uh, social media pages twitter facebook and instagram for Kurt Dove, I am Aaron Martin wishing you a happy fishing time in the next two weeks until we meet again for episode 306 on June 15th. So long, everybody. The Edge is presented by MegaWare Keelguard. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit BassEdge.com and be sure to join Kurt Dove and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge, brought to you in part by Nitro Boats, Lucas Oil, ProtectTheHarvest.com, Mercury Marine, Lowrance Electronics, PowerPole, and Rapaholic.com. 